Let me talk a little bit today uh, and, and ask this question, who doesn't love a good mystery, right? The way we watch and we don't really know how it's going to end and all the pieces kind of come together. We love the ending and the conclusion and we say, ah, that's what was going on. And that's always what we want from our theology. We all, I read a book once called Everything is Figureoutable. We want a figure-outable Bible, right? We want to be able to read it and understand it and know everything about it. And, and there's a lot of that that we can do, but sometimes it actually doesn't work out that way. At least in terms of our perspective, our, our world perspective. And so with that, we enter into this week's Torah portion, which is called Chukat. Say it. Chukat. You got to get a good guttural in there. It means simply a statute. That's what a chukat is. It's one of three types of mitzvot that you find in the Torah. You have mishpatim, which are judgments, like things that make sense. You have edot. It's another form of a commandment. And then you have these, these chukim is the plural. The word is chok, singular statute, chukim, statutes, multiple. Okay, so like in the portion, for example, the class example in this week's Torah portion is the red heifer. This is the statute of the law that the Lord commanded. The statute of the law, chukat ha-Torah. But what separates a chok from other kinds of these mitzvot? And that is the mystery. The mystery behind the chukim. The classic, as I said, the red heifer. Who would ever think of such a thing? Who would ever think of a commandment where you burn a cow, put its ashes in water, and then it does something to help people get uncontaminated from corpses? Or shatnez, you know this mixture, that's the word Hebrew, the commandment to not wear linen and wool garments together. Why? What is that? Cheeseburgers? I, I can't have a cheeseburger, like why not milk and meat? Or why does that particular kind of hoof and the fact that the animal chews its cud, what is, what is behind that? What makes that a kosher and okay animal? Animal. These are the chukim. These are things that like they don't exactly make sense. They're kind of maybe weird. That is what they are, weird. And sometimes in Judaism, there, there are a couple of different ways of seeing them. Some, some teach, just do it. Just do it. It doesn't matter. You don't have the enlightenment. You're not God. You don't know what it means. Just do it. Others say, just do it, but spend a lot of time trying to understand why. Study and know what it means. But ultimately, all opinions agree that whether you understand it or not, I don't understand this, I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. When you perform that type of mitzvah, when you don't really understand it, you, you, you achieve a higher level in the sense of just doing it because God said to do it. You're transcending the level of intellect and the essence of your soul joins in the essence of God. That's kind of a big deal about cheeseburgers, but you know, that's kind of the comparison. That's the connection that Judaism makes, which brings me to today's point. And yes, you'll be shocked to know this is part four and the conclusion of who are you listening to? Parsha Chukat. Here is a hoke of our lives, a mystery, 
a statute, if you will, nevertheless mysterious, and it's one of, gr- of life's great questions. It's, a pr- it's much more practical than the red heifer or woolen linen or, you know, hooves and cud. Those are practical, but this is much more because it's about this world and the real life. And here, here is the question. Here's the mystery. How can it be that putting others ahead of our own interests is the best thing we can do for ourselves? How, how is that? How can it be that a life dedicated to serving others and being in relationships can be A or V key to our personal happiness? How can this be? And someone might say, seriously, we're going to talk about that? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows we serve other people, and it's, and it's good for us. It makes us feel good. We're going we're gonna to spend time talking about this. We'll actually think about this. You might dismiss that question and say, it's common knowledge. We just, we just do it. But does it make sense that that is how that works? I mean, we do it because it makes us feel good, but why do we understand that? Sacrificial living and giving for the good of others is a key to personal happiness? That's sort of like the red heifer conundrum. How can you make these ashes create this concoction that purifies people who've interacted with the dead and yet pollutes the person who prepared the portion? You see the contradiction there? It's like, Pure, not pure, not pure. So the same thing here. How is it that when I put your self-interest ahead of my own, I benefit? It's not logical, actually. Because if you think about this, if everything I do is for me, if I am the beneficiary of every action in my life, I should be happier. I should be happiest. I'm getting everything I want. I gain from everything I do. I'm the center of my universe. My self-protection, my self-interest, my self-preservation. I'm looking out for me. The things that make me happy, not you. That would seem to be the logical thing. How is it then that God and Yeshua instruct us to serve other people as an ultimate good for us? It does not make rational sense. It is undeniably true. And it is actually here the grand finale of our message because I can tell you this. The grumblers, the complainers, they don't like this. The raging unmastered thoughts within your brain do not agree. They are not telling you this. And any ungrateful or entitled person in you that still exists after last week does not like me right now. But those pieces, those last three messages, they all point to here. Happiness is found beyond ourselves, which, yes, I understand how basic that is. But really, when you peel that back, it shouldn't be that way. It's confusing. It should be the other way. There's a reason, but... Before we go there, is anyone familiar with the grant study that was performed by Harvard University? Is being performed by Harvard University. It's the longest longitudinal study of adult development in history. It started in 1938. It's still going on. Now listen, here's the, here's the bad part of it. They took a bunch of white guys from Harvard, 
So it's not real representative of the broader culture, but they took these guys in 1938 and tracked their life history from then to now, those people who are still alive. They had one question they wanted to know. You know what it was? What makes you happy? 85 years of research in this Harvard study. It's the Grant study or the Harvard study of adult development. So they followed these men for decades. College, graduation, marriage, war, parenthood, life crises, old age. Got all of this information. And here's what we've learned from it. George Valiant actually is kind of the guy who kept it going for three decades. And here are two quotes to answer the illogical question of serving others. Valiant's response when he was asked, what have you learned from the Grant study men? That the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. Another one, happiness is love, full stop. 85 years of almost 300 people being tracked. And to that you say, uh, duh, everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. To, it, to be loved, everybody knows that. Listen, it's more than being loved. I've seen plenty of people in my life who are loved, adored, cared for, and they can't turn it the other way. It's not a relationship to be loved. It is a relationship to love and be loved. That's the key. And it might not surprise you to know that unbeknownst to me, when I, I was preparing, it was Monday, I was thinking about the message, I'm thinking, well, you know, I know I had already said last week, I kind of know what I want to do. And my dad sends me this random text, FYI, thought for the week, and it's the Grant Study Takeaways. I was like, thank you, Dad. That's what I needed to know. That's what I wanted to see. The keys to a good life. They're called adaptations. That's what George Valiant termed them as, adaptations. And I really like that term because you know what that means? It means it doesn't come naturally to you to do these things that I'm about to tell you. You have to adapt your life to learn to live this way. Number one is a concept that's called suppression. Suppression. Consciously suppressing unproductive and distressing thoughts. Consciously suppressing negative thoughts. We talked about foreboding joy. We talked about developing the idea to see the good. We talked about nothing is owed to me. Everything's a gift. I got to look for the good. Being aware of where things are coming from and then reacting accordingly. That is called suppression, which leads to the next one that's called sublimation. Sublimation is actually a chemical process. Sublimation, imagine dry ice. Sublimation is something moving from the solid phase to the gas phase with no liquid in between. Dry ice, right? We also do this in LASIK surgery. That's how LASIK surgery works. The laser excites the chemical bonds in your cornea, breaks them, and the solid corneal phase, the solid cornea that's in your eye, 
skips any liquid and goes off into what we call the plume, and it's evacuated, evacuated off by the laser. It's a phenomenal, amazing thing. Who doesn't love to watch dry ice work, right? But psychologically, sublimation has also a thing, and I love it. It refers to the process of redirecting or transforming socially unacceptable or destructive impulses into constructive things. It takes channeling energy in a way that serves greater purpose beyond personal gratification. What in the world does that have to what I just told you, have to do with what I told you about dry ice? Well, picture this. When you take an ice cube, liquid is the natural endpoint. You put an ice cube here, it melts, right? And it, it turns into a what? A liquid if it's not sublimated, right? It just, and, and what does the liquid do? The liquid goes down and it spreads everywhere and saturates everything around it. I want you to imagine and take this home, put it somewhere, think about this. This is the dry ice phenomenon of your brain. I want you to imagine your thoughts are like that ice cube. And when that happens, when you get some source that, that melts your ice cube, and, and imagine that liquid that's melting and running all over people of the negativity and stuff that we're prone to just spread and saturate with people, saturate people with, you got to sublimate that, man. You're not a frozen ice cube. You're a block of dry ice. And what happens is when the source comes in, you don't let it go down and melt and saturate everyone and everything around you. What happens to dry ice? Skips all that crap and goes up. It elevates. It's beautiful. It rises. It does amazing things. It's cool to watch it happen. That's your brain. And that is a key to happiness. Suppression, sublimation, and there's one more, and it was, these were, these were the top five, I'm only giving you three. Altruism. You know the word? Everybody knows the word, right? Those things that I just told you right there, that's all part of top, the, the, the last three weeks. You could, you, you could put all that into this one phrase that I've shared with you. Take every thought captive or they will take you captive. Nobody in here is getting drugged down the interstate with an electromagnet. You shouldn't be. It takes suppression. It takes sublimation. It takes being in charge. But this biggie in the world of adaptation, selfless concern and care for the well-being of others, that is altruism. That's what that means. Those 268 or 86 men or whatever, I can't remember how many are in the study. That's it. Kindness, compassion, generosity without expecting anything in return. But to our question, why would this benefit us? This is the stuff you already know, probably. But... They involve connecting and engaging with others. In other words, you're building relationships. You're transcending your own needs. You focus on something larger than yourself. Physiologically, you're right. It does make you feel, literally feel good to do good things because your brain 
says, this is the right thing to do, and emits these types of response, whatever they're called. I forgot what dopamine is. But this, this self-reflection is, is, I mean, the, the altruism is all part of this key. There's an 80s rock band called Tesla. They said, it's not what you got, it's what you give. Brian Adams said, everything I do, I do for you. That's not exactly true. That's altruism beyond the, beyond the pale. You have to do some things for yourself. Self-protection, there are things that you do. I love the song. Everything I do, I do it for you. Right, not true. Not everything, but a lot of the things. We do it for others. This is altruistic behavior. And it's a concept, that idea, that crosses religious boundaries. Karma, right? Kismet. That's the, the, the Arab version. Our rabbi made it very clear throughout his teachings in the Gospels and on the cross. The Torah is full of giving, not taking. But ultimately it leads to the thing, the thing that matters most. This is the takeaway from the Grant study. You ready? Three words. Relationships, relationships, relationships. That's it. These things, far and away, strongest predictors of life, better predictors than social class, wealth, fame, IQ, even your genes. And that points us right back to our creator in whose image we were made. And here's my point. Why? What's the, what's the answer to the question, the mystery, the hook? Why would God give us all these rules about taking care of other people when clearly we should be better if we took care of ourselves? Well, that speaks directly to the nature of God, which is present within you. He made you. No, God doesn't worry about sublimating his thoughts or suppressing his thoughts, right? He doesn't have to do that. Although I thought about this this morning... There was a time when who changed God's mind because he was reacting to something. What did he say? I'll kill you all. Moses, I'll kill them all. You can take the lead. Let's get this thing done. Moses said, stop. Think. Remember. Remember the patriarchs. Do all this stuff. So I'm thinking how heretical this is, but even God had a moment. How could we not be expected to have moment upon moment upon moment that we must be in control? But no, he doesn't need those things. He simply is a loving God. And guess what? He doesn't need to do what he does for you. As a matter of fact, it turns out he doesn't even need you. But he created a world for you because he wants you. What does that mean? It means he wants a relationship with you. Relationship, relationship, relationship. And he labors to make himself known to us as a good and faithful God. It's clearly no wonder then that for us, created in his image, 
that we possess within us this deep need for relationships and a desire to derive joy in this world from how well we live those out with other people. And I understand that there are broken relationships and I know how hard it all is. And I know even hearing this might be hard, but it doesn't change the universal principle. It doesn't change that. It's not the material. It's not, it's not, it's not that. It's not, that's not what we get. But when we help, when we serve, when we invest in the lives of others, especially with no thought of reward, sort of like these mysterious chukim that I'm talking about, where we just know in our knower that it's good for us. Well, the reason for that is because God put it in your knower and said, be like me. So the key to happiness, it turns out, is being like God as it relates to being a part of other people's lives, even when they make it hellaciously difficult. Again, there are boundaries, but we're not talking about the exceptions. We are the living image in some small way of God, and therein lies the greatest sense of happiness. And, and you know what? It's no mystery. We're, we're made for this. We're made for it. And again, I want to tell you something. It happens to the best of us. This Hukat Torah portion is the saddest to me of all the Torah portions. Why? What happens to Moses? I know I've said hell a lot here, but a lot, after going through the living hell of being the leader to Israel, what happens to Moses? He loses it. He loses it. Remember, he says, you rebels, man. You, you want this, you rebels? And he strikes the rock twice, and what happens? This is ironic, because I was just talking about dry ice, now that I think about it. What happens? He doesn't sublimate. He strikes the rock, and what happens? The water gushes out everywhere, all over, and God says, you're not going in. Now listen, thank God we are not in charge of leading millions of people through the desert. You have your own, I don't mean this insultingly, but you have your own little microscopic life to contend with in the big scheme, and even in comparison to what Moses went through. It happens to the best of us. Why am I telling you that? Because this is hard business. It's hard stuff. The people got the best of Moses. They will try to get the best of you. Moses defined altruism for 40 years, serving, sacrificing, and, and it's unfair. But he taught us in his moment of weakness, and that's what I want you to get. The keys, everything I told you for the past four weeks. Keys to happiness. Keys to happiness. And I thought about this this morning, and I realized, man, you know what? If somebody tuned in four weeks ago, they are probably comparing me to Josh Osteen, I mean, Joel Osteen and Andy Stanley and saying, who is this nutcase? What is this, a psychology class at the University of Georgia? And you know what I would say to them? Shh, be quiet and learn. That attitude is probably contributing to great unhappiness in your life. 
The Bible is a book that is supposed to teach us how to live life like holy people. I know, and this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, be good, do good, love God, love people. And you know what? You can love yourself, in the words of Justin Bieber. But that's not the key. (laughs) That's not the key to it. Here is the conclusion to four weeks of psychology with the Bible in it, and I absolutely know the Holy Spirit involved in it. I have no regrets. I have nothing that I would change about anything I've said to you because I believe it has great power. But there's an incredible weakness in what I do. I spend weeks, sometimes months, on series and and immersing myself in these things. And then I come in here and talk to you about it for 30 minutes. And so for me, outside of these doors, everything that I'm saying, everything I'm learning, everything I'm teaching you, I'm confronted with it nonstop. I understand how difficult it is because I'm doing it. I'm trying to do it. And it has been hard, and it is making a change in my life. I've been trying to do this for 20 years. But when you get real intentional about it and really tune in, not only does it get more difficult, it gets incredibly more rewarding because you see, feel, experience the change in your thoughts. But this is the problem. This is the weakness. Not in coming in and sitting in those pretty padded purple chairs for 30 minutes and saying, phew, good message. Honey, why didn't you do the laundry? Or whatever. It can't just be here. So that's my plea to you. This is my honest plea. I firmly believe that there's good stuff over the last four weeks. So here's what I want. First of all, Who's done anything with it outside of a Saturday? Who's done anything other than me come in here and listen to me jump around and tell jokes and say some good things? Have you woken up every morning saying, thank God? Modéani, thank you, God, bless me. Have you written in your gratitude journal? Have you taken the time to do that? Have you thought about your thoughts? Have you pictured the interstate? Have you had these moments? Because if you have Thank you, good, you're making a better world. It starts with you. A lot of people may not have, so I'm asking you, go back and listen to what I said over the last four weeks. I've told you this, I make a joke out of it, but you literally can 2X my voice on podcasts and it sounds totally normal. You can listen to it at double speed, but I want you to go back and I want you to listen because I never have said that ever to you. But because of my immersion therapy that I'm going through here, having taught you and being held accountable to these things, I know that it's important for all of us. I want to encourage you to go back and listen. Make a few notes. Jot a few things down that stick out to you. And then do it. That's what I told you. Then do it. Do it. Do it. Okay? The victory is in the doing, like that 405-pound bench press. That's actually what I want to see everyone in here do, ultimately. I'd like for all of us to go. So, you know, I, I, I can give you information. 
lot of my messages, that's what they are. They're information. We're learning about the Bible. We're learning about the history, the context, the culture. We're learning about some Hebrew words. And that's really important. And that's what we do. It's part of our culture. But so is this. And this is more than information. It has to be more than information. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta plant it, and you gotta water it, and you gotta let it grow. Okay? Let's make that deal. So I challenge you. That's the challenge. And I want you to share it with me. I want you to tell me if you have struggles, and I want you to ask me for help if you need it. Because I want you to be happy. And listen, this is the Torah moment to choose life, to choose blessing. These things literally, literally kept people alive longer than those who did not implement these things. So when I say choose life, I mean choose life. We have the high holidays coming up. Now listen, I'm going to be doing a lot of these things. One thing I will not be doing is being here in the month of July as I'm preparing to take a sabbatical. I have a lot of things that I need to do for this community. I've got to figure out how we're going to build our things. I've got to prepare for the holidays. I need to give you some information teaching series because there are some really good things I want to share with you. I don't know which direction I'm going yet, but I need some learning and some, some strategizing time. So I'm going to be doing those things during the month. You're in very good hands. You have capable teachers and musicians and an incredible community. This community is not about me. I won't be here, but I'll still be doing that. And I want you to, in preparation for what's coming just down the road in the holidays, the month of Elul. What is the month of Elul? It's the month we take accounting. We take inventory of our emotions and our soul. Cheshbon HaNefesh, the accounting of our soul. This was the perfect thing in the series that was never intended to be a series. It turned out to be the perfect series for where we are as we approach the long, hot, dry summer and the days of mourning and Tisha B'Av and all this stuff. And then we begin to rise, right? We come into the Shabbat, the Shabbats of consolation, and we work through the month of Elul. So let's do this together. That's my ask. That's my plea. Let's do this together, and let's be there for each other, and let's strengthen each other and continue to build what I witnessed here today as the most beautiful community in all of Messianic Jewish kingdom. No, I don't think there's anything like this, and it's because of us, because God is with us not really because of us. It's because God is with us, but God works through people. So let's work. Let's work on ourselves and, our, and, and others. Fair? Fair? I have a deal? Good. We'll emerge from the fall holidays, and we will be the next, the new improved, next, better improved version of yourself as we elevate and ascend. Shabbat Shalom, my friends.